Let's turn to God's word then. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 8 to 4, 6. Be gloriously strange, do good. Now, I was playing hockey two weeks ago, and we were defending a short corner, uh, which is never a pleasant experience. The ball thudded against our goalkeeper's pads and rebounded towards our right back. Now, he was a young man with rather more enthusiasm than skill and experience, I think. Uh, He realized, to his credit, he realized decisive action was needed to clear the ball. Um, So he stepped forward and hit it as hard as he could towards our goal. Uh, Thankfully, it went millimeters wide of the post, but if it had been inch or two to the left, it would have been the most spectacular own goal I had ever seen. There's something particularly shameful about an own goal, isn't it? Isn't there? And you've seen some spectacular ones, I'm sure, on YouTube clips and the like. Uh, It violates team sport's most important principle. Don't score one for the opposition. It's as simple as that. Just don't do it. Now, Peter, as we know, as we've seen in our earlier sermons on this, uh, on this uh, letter, he's writing to these scattered believers, scattered throughout what we know as Turkey today. Asia Minor was the Roman province. And he's exhorting them to declare God's praises by living good lives. That's what he said in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Being on team Jesus They really should not be playing in the opposite direction. That's his point. I think that's his point throughout this passage that we're looking at today. He's covered some very specific situations in society which we dealt with last week and we squirmed as we did so because they weren't easy. But Peter now speaks more generally. And uh, basically he's saying... If we're wearing Christ's shirt, if we're playing on his team, we should behave like Christ. For instance, don't pay back evil for evil. When evil is done to you, instead love, be compassionate, humble. That is a huge ask, isn't it? That is our calling, he says. It's also the way of blessing. He says that also. He then quotes from Psalm 34. Now, interestingly, I think David did this psalm, didn't you? Where's David gone? You preached on this psalm. I think he's out. Oh, there you are. Uh, A few months ago, is that right? Yeah, you did. So we remember it well, don't we? Um, uh, David was in trouble when he wrote this psalm. He was hiding from Saul among the Philistines in Gath. Uh, He had been anointed by God to be the next king, but he was wondering how on earth he would ever become king. Before, uh, with Saul after him. He was unrecognized. He was on the run. His life was threatened. And yet the psalm expresses his trust in the Lord despite the hostile environment. Seeking to do good. Trusting in the Lord means you can seek to do good rather than evil. Trusting God will vindicate him. That's what David was doing rather than thinking he has to completely fight his own corner because no one else is looking after him. He trusts that God is looking after him. That's the point. That's what Peter is saying. You don't have to fight your own corner. God is looking after you. Trust him. Do good, even when people do bad to you. 
So Peter's readers, feeling the pinch of opposition as they were at this time, are urged to stay faithful to Christ rather than take off the team shirt and meld into the background or just play like the other team are playing. And so Peter is using David as an example. But more than that, he says, he goes on to say, imitate the behavior of great David's greatest son, Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, who himself, of course, was unrecognized, who was treated badly, but ultimately vindicated by God. He brought Psalm 34 to complete fulfillment, and he remains the great example for us. Trusting in the Lord, well, that involves submission to Christ's lordship. If we trust in him, we submit to him. He says that, uh, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Fearing him more than we fear other people, those around us. You remember last week we had honor the king, but fear God. Do you remember that? Yes, pray pay, pay due respect to powers and authorities, but fear God more than them. And so we submit to the Lord here. We submit to Christ. We don't fear what those around us fear or those who are opposing us fear. We don't fear them because we fear and honor and submit to the Lord. But we do this with gentleness, not aggressively, so that our consciences are clear. Um, we do it gently, with gentleness and respect, it says at the end of verse uh, 15 there. Allowing God to search our consciences. That means that we're ready to admit when we've got it wrong. Because as we struggle, this seems such a high, you know, how on earth can we live like this? Well, we're going to get it wrong. The key thing is, what do we do then? Well, we allow God to search our consciences and we put up our hands and we say, my bad. And we accept his forgiveness. And we move on in the joy of that forgiveness. Ready to admit that. And uh, that keeps, if we're ready to admit our own bad, that keeps the opposition from gaining ground. You see, if we become defensive and uh, denying our wrong, wrongdoing, then we're playing the opposition's game, aren't we? They gain ground because we're just like them. But if we say, yeah, okay, I got that wrong, it's like we're pulling the rug out from from under those who oppose us. Because actually, yes, it is our, if it is our bad, we can be forgiven for that. And we can move on. Following Christ's example in all of this, he was put to death, verses 17 to 18, um, yet made alive by the Spirit. Believers uh, will at times, we may not be put to death, but there may be times when we feel that we are robbed of the best of life because of the opposition we face or the trials we face. Maybe there will be some here who will be robbed of life itself for Christ's sake. That's the experience of many people throughout the world who follow Christ. We should not think we should be exempt from that. He was put to death, yet made alive by the Spirit. Believers will at times, um, yes, yeah, so, so, so we might feel that. Christ was put to death, but he was made alive. Uh, it's worth it. 
If we stay loyal to Christ, we can trust him to do the same. But as they do this, Peter urges them, play Christ's way rather than adopting the style of the opposition. That's key. Then he goes on. Christ is reigning. Ignore those who ignore him. Uh, this lesson, he comes up with a lesson from Noah's days here. This is really difficult. This is really difficult to understand. Here are two of possibly the most difficult verses to understand in the whole of Scripture. And different interpretations about what exactly they mean abound. Through whom Jesus also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. The trouble is with Noah's ark is that we've reduced to it to a charming children's story. You know, the God, the Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. It's not a charming children's story. It is horrific. This is God's judgment being brought on earth. But what is Peter referring to here? Well, here are some of the options touted, debated by scholars. So there are different questions here, like who are the spirits in prison? Are they unbelievers who have died? Are they, some people say they're Old Testament believers who have died. Some people say they're fallen angels. What did Christ preach to them? Did he give these um, unbelievers who had died a second chance for repentance? Was he simply declaring his victory to them? Was he declaring their final condemnation? When did Christ preach? Did he preach? If, as we read it, it sounds like as Jesus went from the cross down into the grave, he preached then before his resurrection. Or was it after his resurrection when he was raised up, exalted again? Or was it in the days of Noah? Well, here we go. There are just some of the questions raised by all of that. Well, I'm not going to ex examine all of those. I'm going to tell you what I think is probably, I was going to say the easiest way to read it. There's not an easy way to read this. But maybe this is the, the, the way I can make sense of it. It is possible to read this as Christ went to preach to the spirits who are now in prison. They are now in hell. But when the preaching was done, these were actually the people listening to Noah. The people listening to Noah preaching just before the flood, they refused to repent. Now, like all the prophets, Noah was preaching by the Spirit. The self-same spirit who is called in New Testament, in the New Testament, the spirit of Christ. So you could say that when Noah was preaching, this was actually Christ preaching through Noah by his spirit to these people who didn't respond. They ignored God. They drowned in the flood and they're now in hell awaiting judgment. Now, please, feel free to disagree with that. You're absolutely, that's absolutely fine. I think that suits the context best. Several points to note. Only eight were saved. That's astonishing, isn't it? Only eight were saved. It must have seemed to Noah, as he preached, as people poured scorn on him, as people ignored him, that the whole world was against him. That's why 
Peter mentions this, because that's exactly how Peter's readers either will be feeling now or will be feeling a little down the road. They will feel the minority in the world that everyone just scoffs at them. But when that judgment came, and it was horrific, Noah was vindicated. Just as Peter's readers will be if they stay true to Christ, if they wear his shirt and play his way. And then we get an encouragement from baptism. And and again, this is not simple. This is difficult for us. Uh, He talks about the ark. In the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism. That now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That note, let's first of all note, this is the most important thing, where Peter ends here. This is where he ends. With Christ having descended into death, verse 18, now raised, ascended, and ruling. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. We sang it, didn't we? That's true of Christ. And that's so important. These believers are going to be saved by Christ's resurrection. That is just as God rose Christ out of the grave and said, this is my son. He's done nothing wrong. He's taken the punishment of the world and he's dealt with it. And now we exa- I exalt him on high again into this position of ultimate kingship. So those who put their trust in Christ, the same will happen to us. God is saying, I've dealt with their sin and I'm raising them up. And they're seated on high with Christ in the heavenly realms. If they're playing Christ's way, if they're wearing his shirt, where Christ is, they will be. That's the point. And so, yes, it's tough. Yes, it feels like you're one of the eight, the only eight who believe and nobody else cares. But look where we're going. That's the point. That's the encouragement. Whatever believers suffer here and now, You see, Peter's got here. Peter's been sparked. He's mentioned Noah's preaching. And so he draws a parallel between Noah's ark and baptism, which probably made all kinds of sense to his original hearers, but gets us scratching our heads. What exactly? Why is he going here now? But you see the parallel. Just as Noah and family get in the ark and pass through the flood, they're kept safe in the ark. He's saying it's like baptism. In baptism, we, we identify with Christ. We get on Christ like they got on the ark. And just as he died and was raised again, so we die with him and are raised again. It's like going through the waters. That's the parallel. Christ has gone through the waters of judgment and believers are kept safe in him through this journey too. Now, in order to be saved... Noah's family had to do more. This is, this is an important point. In order to be saved, Noah's family didn't just have to sit there and say, yes, I agree what Noah's saying, that's true, that's right. I agree, I believe. They had to do something. And what they had to do was get on the ark. 
no good them sitting there saying, oh, yes, that's right, that's right, while the, you know, the gangway went up and the ark floated away. They had to get on the ark. Um, they had to climb on board. You remember at the recent baptismal service two weeks, two weeks ago? Feels like ages ago already. Two weeks ago, I talked about getting on the bus. The bus pulls up. It's no good just saying, oh, yes, well, that bus is going to the station. You need to get on the bus to be taken by the bus. Baptism signifies that we're climbing aboard Christ's bus or Christ's boat, you might say. If you've got the image of the ark, the Lord's ark. Our inner belief is fleshed out by this external act. Now, this is difficult for us because often at baptisms in our kind of churches where we have believers' baptism, uh, people will say something like, you know, there's nothing magical about the water. That's right. There's nothing magical about the water. They might also say, the act of baptism doesn't save you. It's only a symbol of what's already happened. That's a little bit more difficult now, I understand why people say that. It is a reaction to how infant baptism has, been, has often been practiced. Not always, but often. Often, infant baptism has become a ritual, a superstition that people do with no real faith, but they want to ensure that their babies, their children are going to be okay. No matter what happens, no matter how they live, no matter whether they follow Christ or not, they've been done, they'll be all right. That's superstition. That's, that's wrong, isn't it? Now, not everyone, please understand this as we have a dual baptistic policy here. This is really important. Not everyone who practices infant baptism is doing that. When ba infant baptism is practiced with real faith, that's a different matter completely. And people genuine, with uh, genuinely biblical understanding of what they're doing will do that. And uh, that's, you know, that's a different matter completely. So I'm not having a, a go at them here. Please don't think that. But we understand that it's often been practiced that other way, that unhelpful way where it becomes a superstition. And so those of us who've grown up within um, baptistic, believers' baptism church circles, well, we, we struggle. We react against that. And so we say that baptism is merely a simple, a symbol. Which presents us with a problem, doesn't it? What are we going to make of Peter's words here? Baptism now saves you. It's what he says. I'm not making it up. This is literally what the word of God says. Baptism saves you. In the New Testament, when people turn to Christ, their inner repentance and belief was made concrete, fleshed out by the outer act of baptism. And we can read about that in the New Testament where often it seemed at the same moment, at the same day, they believed and they were baptized. Um, now, note how Peter describes baptism, and this is really important. He describes it as the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Baptism is the outward expression of an inward commitment. It is only effective if that's sincere, if the commitment is sincere, if the conscience is good. 
If people are coming in repentance to God saying, yes, Lord, I've lived the wrong way. I see Jesus came and died for me. And by putting my trust in him, my sins are forgiven. and I have new life in him as he was raised. I'm raised with him. I believe that. And, but there's only if, that's only um, effective when the heart is sincerely believing that. In that case, the act of baptism with faith is very much part of the process of being saved. I don't know how we can avoid that. Believe and bapti- be baptized, uh, Jesus said. The public sign that people are identifying with Christ and becoming part of the church. Some of you will remember the big uh, Billy Graham campaigns of past decades. You know, he. some of you would have been saved, or I don't know. Some maybe, absolutely. He'd preach the gospel. He'd say a prayer of commitment for people to pray with him. And then he'd say something like, if you've given your life to Christ tonight, get up out of your seat, come down to the front. Or maybe, if you want to give your life to Christ, get up out of your seat, come down to the front. And someone will be at the front to counsel and so forth. Now, I think in the New Testament, baptism acted much more as the get up out of your seat move moment than it does for us today. Today, it usually happens months, years often down the line after the initial commitment. And we'll come to that in a moment. But uh, those who practice believers' baptism today, fearful of baptism being seen superstitiously as conveying salvation without faith, actually can find themselves in the rather unbiblical position of saying that baptism is merely a symbol, something people who are already Christians do to demonstrate their faith, rather than something that happens as part of turning to Christ. Consequently, we really don't understand how the New Testament uses baptism imagery. And that's a problem for us. But what does this mean? And this is an issue. I, I, I know this is an issue. What does this mean for someone who professes faith in Christ, who are truly trusting Christ, but has not been baptized? Does that mean they're not saved? Well, absolutely the last thing I want to do today is to spread lack of assurance. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and by no actions of our own. Absolutely. But there are a couple of questions to ask. If that is you, if you are saved, you feel you're saved, you're trusting in Jesus, but you've not been baptized, there's a couple of questions to ask. I'm not going to let you off the hook so easily, quite so easily. First major question is, are you trusting Christ? (laughs) If you say yes to that, The next question is key, and it is, okay, why haven't you been baptized? Why haven't you been baptized? Now, for some, in a church like ours, it was going to be a question of age. Well, I've grown up, I've believed for as long as I can remember, but, you know, my church won't baptize me until I'm a certain age. And that's understandable. That's that's, uh, different churches will have different policies about that. And uh, uh, that's difficult. Um, And that's understandable, absolutely. What age is it appropriate to administer believer's baptism? But it might be, this is my fear about this, it might be because you think faith is a private matter and that there is no need for public confession of your faith. In other words, you want to be a believer, but you don't want to publicly 
identify with Christ. That is a problem. It might be that you're assenting inwardly, yes, of course I believe, but you still want to live like an unbeliever outwardly. That is a problem. If you've not been baptized because you want to avoid publicly identifying with Christ, that's definitely a problem. And yes, you should consider where you stand. And that is important. Now, the Lord knows our nature thoroughly. I, and I, you know, I can't judge your heart. The Lord judges your heart. But, but the Lord knows our nature thoroughly. He knows that to really commit to follow him, we need that outward public act, not just the inner conviction. The physical act galvanizes our faith. It's a bit like marriage. It's very like marriage. God knows how important public marriage vows are to our exclusive commitment to one person. That's why marriage is very different from just living with someone. Because you've made that public commitment to each other. And that matters. Baptism is a means of grace. When we take it, it helps us to be firmly established and to grow. Now, of course, it's not, growth is not guaranteed after baptism. I've baptized far too many people that I don't know if they're following the Lord at this point. There's no evidence that they are. People can still drift away. People can still turn away after baptism, just as they can if they've made a prayer of commitment. Neither the it is true that neither the words of a prayer of commitment nor the water of baptism in themselves convey salvation. But with faith, it is a vital part of the process. You see, if you've grown up in a Christian family, you may well feel, you may well feel that you've always trusted in Jesus. I absolutely understand that. Because you perhaps cannot remember a time that you didn't believe. You've heard about Jesus and you've never, you've, you know, you've always trusted in him. You've understood that you're a sinner. You've understood that you need saving. And that Jesus came to die for you. You cannot remember a time you didn't believe that. You certainly can't point to a particular time when you made a commitment. You know you're a sinner. You're trusting Jesus for forgiveness and new life. That is not uncommon. That's very common. For you, baptism is an important time to crystallize and express this. For many, it is a real get-off-the-fence moment. If you've grown up in that environment where you're going to, you know, it's no, you can't live on your parents' faith. Are you going to follow Jesus or not? Well, if you are, get off the fence. I've heard, I do believe, so I'm going to commit my whole life to following him or not. Maybe you are, and I think this is true of some, maybe you are trying to play both ways. Inwardly assenting, you know, for that sense of security. You'll be all right, you know, in the eternity. But actually, you're still running with the ungodly. That is not a sustainable place to be. You have no guarantee of assurance if you're doing that. Get off the fence. Get on the bus. Or get into the boat. And baptism is the means the Bible gives up for doing this. Can you do this other ways? Well, possibly, but baptism is the means whereby God has given us to do this. Jesus commands it. Will you do it? 
Now, of course, there's another situation that is true for a number of you, I know. It's more complicated for those baptized as infants. You might have been baptized as an infant by believing parents, and maybe you have declared your faith publicly in an act of confirmation. I'm not going to argue with you over that. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You're identifying with Christ publicly. If your faith was genuine at the time of that conversion, that's all good. Uh, sorry, at the time of confirmation. That's all good. But if you want to be saved by Christ, I don't know how you can do that without identifying with him publicly. There are other complications to that. You know, I can think of some scenarios when to identify with Christ publicly means ostracism from your family or the end of your life. That's, you know, I'm, we're not in that situation. I'm not addressing that, but I appreciate that's a reality for some. And perhaps that's something you'd like to come and talk through with me. Please do. I thought it was important to say, I've taken quite a long time to say it. Let's get back to the passage. Uh, play Christ's way. Don't score for the opposition. Here we go, verses 1 to 6. And uh, time is going, so I'll be very quick. If we're part of Christ's team, don't live like the pagans. That's why he's saying the pagans. He mentions they're those who don't know God. He's not being particularly disparaging the pagans are those who don't know God they don't know God so of course they're not going to live like him are they after the positive attitudes of 3 verse 8 we now have a list of things to avoid because to engage in these things and I haven't got no time to go through them bit by bit but to engage in these things is to play towards the wrong goal do you see that they're to go against God's kingdom it's like trying to score an own goal these are all about living for pleasure, living for self, living for the moment rather than for eternity. But life on earth isn't just going to drift along forever. That's, that's, that's a strong theme here, isn't it? He's talked about Noah and the ark. Judgment is coming when Christ returns. There's a little ditty that some of you will be familiar with. It's a uh, trigger warning here. It's uh, for the squeamish. It gets somewhat gruesome. It's called Worms. The worms crawl in and the worms crawl out. The ones that crawl in are lean and thin. The ones that crawl out are fat and stout. Your eyes fall in and your teeth fall out. Your brains come tumbling down your snout. Be merry, my friend. Be merry. Now, people may not know it, but that is the life philosophy of most people who live around us. One way or another. I am simply food for worms. Therefore, let me try and get as much out of life here and now as I can. Because there's nothing to come. When we're dead, we're just food for worms. Let's just go for it. Now, many don't think quite so hedonistically. Many think, well, I've got to try and do some good while we're here. But it's still underlying that. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what they were saying in Noah's day, of course. The person who wears Christ's shirt knows differently. Christ's body Christ's body, this is glorious, Christ's body is not now food for worms. 
Look at where he is. Peter has told us where he is. He is raised, ascended on high at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. And he will come to judge. That's good news. We don't like to talk about judgment. It's the sort of thing, you know, we talk about God's love and all the rest of it. We don't like to talk about judgment. I can understand why not, but it is good news that God is going to judge. Look at the world right now. Look at what is happening in certain trouble spots in the world. Is that what you want to happen forever and ever and ever and ever? God's creation getting systematically made worse for evil to win, for good to be silenced. That's the alternative to God's judgment. I'm sorry, but it's true. None of us want that, do we? We want the world to be restored. We want evil to be stopped. We want love and goodness to triumph. That happens in Christ when he comes to judge. That is good news. However, it is sobering and worrying news for those who find themselves the wrong side of that judgment. The only hope we have is that we've got on the boat, got on the ark. Because Christ has gone through judgment for us and he's come out the other side. And there's no reason why any of us here cannot be with him in that. And we want to give a good reason for the hope that, in us, in, hope that is in us so that all these folk out here who don't yet know can be with him in that. Because we love them and we want the best for them just as Christ does. But it's their choice. It's our choice. He's not going to frog march us on the, bo on the boat. Let's be won by his love and make sure we're there. And let's pray for the world that others will join. Christ is not in the grave. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the skies. Do you know that you're there with him? Do you know that you're there with him? If not, put your trust in him right now. Turn to him. Admit you need saving. See what he's done for you. Accept his love and walk into his kingdom of new life. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are filled with awe and joy as we think of you raised high at God's right hand. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who came down to save us, who went to death, whom was raised to life and who is exalted on high. That's true, Lord, that's true right now. We struggle to believe it because we look around at a world that is chaotic and doesn't seem to be ruled by anyone often. Lord, we look at our own lives and see how actually you are ruling, you have saved us, you have protected us, you've done so many good things for us. 
And Lord, we know we live in the tension of these times, the now and the not yet. We can't understand what's going on. We believe you're ruling, but we can't understand. But we know you're coming again. We thank you. Give us strength to serve you. Give us strength to remain true to your shirt. Help us, Lord, not to score own goals. Help us to stand firm under opposition. But Lord, we want to pray for those who oppose us. We want to pray for the loved ones we know who don't yet wear your shirt, Lord. This thought of judgment. We know you are the one who judges justly, but it's horrendous. People cut off from your goodness forever. Lord, please save these people. Please, Lord, save these people. We think of that situation between Israel and the Palestinians at the moment. Lord, please turn hearts around. Israel, with all that heritage, Lord, turn them to Christ because that will be like life from the dead. Paul says, do that, Lord. And the Palestinians too, Lord. Many, uh, or there are a number of Palestinian believers cowering in Gaza right now today, along with everyone else. Lord, that breaks our hearts at the, all that's happening there. As it does, to, uh, we think of those who were killed and kidnapped and are being now held hostage in, in Gaza. Lord, we can't sort that out. It's just messed up. But you can and you will. And this is our hope. So, Lord, we turn to Christ. He's coming again. Lord, may many, 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 many more people be saved before he comes. Please, Lord, and help us to be energized and empowered to reach out to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.